Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. First and foremost, happy belated new year. It is a new decade. The Australian swing has begun, and the Under Review crew could not be more excited. And to that point, we are ecstatic to kick things off with today's guest. He grew up in San Diego playing soccer and tennis and has spent the past 15 years as an elite high-performance coach, first in college, then as a national coach at the USTA, and now he's a hired gun, grinding it out on the tour week in and week out with his players following the sun. Full-time coach and budding broadcaster Mark Lucero is going to tell us what happens to a tennis coach when law school isn't for you, how Andre Agassi influenced him as a junior, and what it's like to coach a player to the quarters of the French Open and then grind with them through horrible adversity. We met up with Mark on Christmas Eve day. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. Well, listen, I mean, Sam Query is on court eight. Claire Lou's on court 10. Uh, we are on court 13 at the USTA. What do you call it? Training Center West. Training Center West uh, in Carson, California. The man you hear is our friend and uh, elite coach, Mark Lucero, stopping by f- to talk before. Uh, Christmas Eve with your parents. Dude, thanks for having me. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Right, first time, <laughs> long time. You've got big news to break, so let's just get right into it. The, you know, we do five-set format. Our first set is our off-the-court report. Um, what have you been up to, man? What's, what's, what's the story? In 2020, I'm going to be coaching Nicole Gibbs and Stevie Johnson. Uh, in conjunction with Peter Smith, Peter and I are going to coach Stevie J together. Peter Smith... The longtime and now former USC Trojan tennis coach. That's Peter, yeah. Uh, one of the best coaches maybe in the history of college tennis. And they had a very productive relationship at USC together. And I'm, I'm thrilled to you know work with Peter and to work with Stevie and, uh, and to work with Nicole too. They say that um, Stevie Johnson is probably one of the greatest... NCAA players there ever was. Yeah, he won 72 matches in a row at one point, singles matches. Pretty good. Stevie Johnson also got to eight in the world. Will this be your first foray into men's tennis, pro men's tennis? Yeah, I've done a few weeks sort of here and there, uh, filling holes, you know, filling gaps for people. But this will be the first time I've been uh, consistently, yeah, on the men's side. So I'm looking forward to it. I'll do some weeks with Stevie, some weeks with Nicole, and then some weeks together. So. All right, so you got to tell us, how, yeah. does it, how did it come about? What happened? First of all, you were with Shelby Rogers. What happened with Shelby? Five years. Uh, you know, Shelby and I have a great relationship to this day. Like, I, you know, I, I love her, and I, I think her best tennis is ahead of her. Um, and going into this offseason, I was, you know, I was looking for, for something new, and it was... Um, something that kind of just came about organically and talking to people. Um, I had great relationships prior with Stevie and Nicole and just was talking to one. And then I said, listen, like, would you be interested in sort of splitting with the other? And they both were totally on board. They're both based here in LA and spent a lot of time here in Carson. So it was something that just kind of worked out perfectly for me. 
I mean, that's an incredible off-the-court report. You're not <laughs> just going back out on tour in a few days with one player, but you're going out with two. And we love Nicole Gibbs. She's been on the show. Uh, she was very forthcoming. We did. A, we actually spoke to her almost probably 10 months ago at the Newport Beach Challenger. I know just from talking with her, she hasn't been, you know, satisfied with her results. Where do you fit in that equation now as as coach? Well, we the funny thing is we worked together for a couple of years prior when I was working for the USTA. So she was a junior player and, you know, going to Stanford and I was the coach who spent, you know, the most time with her. And so we have a great relationship going back and I think that's going to really help. For her, the challenge has been figuring out the game style that she wants to play because it's kind of evolved over the last few years since she's been on tour. I think she's figured out how she wants to play, how is she's most effective, and I think moving forward, you know, just sort of developing the confidence and, you know, I'm just going to help her be the best, best version of Nicole. I think for her, she's realized that she's going to be most effective, especially against the top players, when she's able to make them uncomfortable. And for her, that needs to be changing pace, changing speed of the ball, getting the ball up out of their strike zone, using her slice, coming into the net. She's really good around the net, volleys, half volleys, pretty skilled there. And just figuring out how to deploy all those different things. And, and for a while, you know, the women's game can be so, uh, you know, it can be filled with players trying to play the same style. But you see a lot of matches and it looks like both players are trying to play the exact same way. And for her, if she plays someone bigger than her, they're probably going to do it better. And, and, and so she needs to be creative in order to figure out ways to get on offense. And and wasn't Stevie working with Craig Boynton? Yeah, for a long time. And they had a lot of success together. And Craig Boynton, a long-time fixture on the Pro Tour. Um, they did not have a good year last year. Yeah, it was a tough year. Um, and it happens in sports. And sometimes... It's the player's fault, sometimes it's the coach's fault, sometimes it's neither. You know, it's just one of those things. So you guys are the fresh new team in now? You, Peter, you? Yeah, one of the fresh new teams. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I think, you know, for both players, I think their best tennis is ahead of them. I'm really, you know, excited to see what both can do this year. His forehand is, the way Brad Gilbert calls it, a fear hand. He's got the real thing. I mean, he's got one of the most hellacious forehands there is. And really, no backhand to speak of. Um, disagree? <laughs> you, you just kind of shook your head. Yeah, that's kind of a stretch. I think he's got a he's got a great slice, one of the best slices on tour. And is that a fact? I, I think it's a fact. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to think who might have a, like Rake Roger has a good slice, serviceable. <laughs> um, but Stevie's got a great slice. He's figured out really, you know. I think Craig and Stevie figured out how to how to use that slice to set up his forehand and well, he defends i mean he just he just kind of parks out in the far corner and just tries to yeah, he's looking forehands. for forehands yeah. yeah yeah and if you can if he can get a hold of a forehand he's probably not going to have to see a backhand but you know we, you know we want to help him sort of figure out how to continue to use a slice how to incorporate coming over it because he can do that and he can do it pretty well and yeah i mean i'm you know excited again to maybe like help with a little bit of a couple of wrinkles maybe in, in the in the tactics and you know, make his you know continue to make his strengths better, so he can use them. Well, I mean, your off the court report is I mean that's high drama. <laughs> coming back out on tour and it's big December. Let's move into our second set. The Australia is like literally a week away, um, or the summer down under, right? So, what happens to you beginning? Yeah, so I'll be on a plane to Shenzhen in about a week. 
Shenzhen. Shenzhen. There's a WTA, WTA event in Shenzhen. And, yeah, it's one of the warm-up tournaments for Australia. So you go there with Nicole. Go there with Nicole. And then straight to Melbourne. Boom. Oh, that's it. There's, because, you don't because play she's Auckland. In, she's out in. She's, not she's in Qualies in Australia. Yeah, so oh, we'll cool. go straight to Melbourne and, and prepare there. And Stevie's playing ATP Cup? He is not. No. I think he's he's playing the Challengers prior. I think Canberra. And then the second one is in maybe Bendigo, if I'm correct. And then he's going to Melbourne from there. Okay. It's tricky because these events in the beginning of the year are pretty strong because everyone's there and everyone wants to play. Yeah. Especially with the ATP Cup. So the cuts... The cuts for the other events end up being really strong, and so sometimes you're, you know, you're thinking about, do I want to play qualies of this event or go here, you know, play a challenger main draw, and where can I get more matches, etc. And so that's kind of how that came about. And what does your day to day look like? You know, it's it's fairly action packed. I mean, people don't necessarily have a good feel for what it is you do every day. Yeah, first and foremost, it depends where you are. If we're at a tournament, I will have already set up practice. So the day will be, you know, getting up, going to the courts, checking the court, making sure the court situation is taken care of, going to the stringer, making sure the rackets are fresh and picking up the rackets. Fitness. Coordinating with the fitness coach, meeting the player, usually in the gym, seeing what's on the docket for that day. If it's a practice day, if it's a match day, that'll sort of dictate what the gym looks like that day. Going to the court, doing practice. You watch tape too. Yeah, after that, it's watching tape. You know, is there a match coming up? Like, do we need to scout the opponent? Watching tape, you know, reviewing uh, whatever documents I have. Usually, uh, I will take a look at a report on the player that we're going to play and I'll break down what I need to break down from there. Sort of synthesize that information into what I'm going to deliver to the player. Where do you get the report from? Uh, a company I'm not going to talk about. Really? Yeah. You have a secret company you're not going to tell us about. Well, if I if I mention them, like the advantage I have goes away because then everyone's going to use them. So you've got a company that you get that I like to use, yeah. 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 And then there's a few different companies that are in this space. Um, it's like that Craig Shaughnessy. It's you know? it's similar to what Craig yeah, what Craig does. There's a few of these, these yeah. programs. Craig's really good. Craig was one of the pioneers in this sort of area, you know, the brain game. This guy Craig Shaughnessy, we've talked about him before with Brad Gilbert, I think. He does these breakdowns, kind of like muckles through the microfiche of the of the matches. Yeah, basically you want to know tendencies. You want to know where the player is going to Patterns. serve on break point. You want to know where the player doesn't like to return at deuce or a break point or a game point or whatever it is. You want to know basically, you want to be able to tell your player where to serve when they really need a point when they're down the game. And you want to tell a player where to lean on when they're at break point because that, that stuff is crucial. In my opinion. There are like these undercover operations that, that aren't really publicized or shared. We're catching up with the other sports. Like the other sports are able to prepare their athletes much better, I think, than tennis. Um, there's another company that I'll work with that does a different sort of service. What I'll do with them is I'll send them a match after it's over. I'll send them, you know, two hours of video. They'll break it down. And what I'll get back is 20 minutes of only the game footage. And then I can filter through it. You know, sort of like in football, the coach can find, hey, I want to know every third and five and when we did a run play or whatever it is. Or I want to see every defense when they were defending, you know, second and long. I'll do the same thing. Hey, I want to know every 15-30 when my player was serving. And then from there, I can even, I can break it down even further. But for me, it's just sort of, a, you know, seeing certain situations, what patterns come up in matches and then how we can address it in practice. It really, that for me really informs 
also how I do my practice a little bit with my players. That's a pro coach right there. It's a lot different. You know, you're not just feeding balls. Yeah, and it's tough too because in, in tennis, you're often a one-man operation or maybe a two-man team or something like that. So you need to employ some of these outside, you know, consultants or whatever to help you out. You're not just walking around the I court can't do that feeding myself. a ball. Yeah, but if, for ball. me to go out there and like tag the video and do all these things, it's a labor-intensive no, no, process. Yeah, but it's not just me feeding balls. It's a much bigger process than that. Uh, forget about your players for a second, but what do you think about what uh, what the what the top of the year is going to bring? Can you really even start with the men? I mean. Is there anybody that you think is going to make some kind of like interesting money moves? I'm bullish on all the young American guys like, you know, Riley Opelka, Tommy Paul. This whole group I think is really good. And, you know, this is a group that I've known about and that we've kind of all been excited about since they were about 12 years old. And I did, I did a trip in 2012. I went to the 14 Under World Championships, the team event in Prostiev. And the boys team that year, it was the 98 birth year. That was Francis TFO, Michael Moe, and William Blumberg. Pretty good team. And they won that event pretty easily. And Where's Michael Moe? Is uh, he going to be? I think he, he, he had some injuries. To... I think he had some injuries in the second half of the year. I saw him in New York. I think that was the first time I'd seen him in a while. And Michael, great athlete, big game. Uh, I mean, crushes the serve, rips the forehand. And, I mean, I think he's he's due. Mm. You know, he, he's a great player. He's, yeah. and, he, and he's one of the hardest workers out there. He is, huh? He's an athlete. He's a stud. Where does he play out of? Out of Bradenton. You know, we were when we were looking at we were, we were doing our research. You know, Ali Risk's name popped into into your uh, bio, and and Jeannie's name popped into your bio. Do you have anything interesting to share about them moving into twenty twenty? I think Ali's playing the best tennis for her career right now. Ali Risk. It's it's been amazing to see her transformation, and I think so much of it has to do with you know being happy off the court. Like she got married to you know Stephen Armitage this year, and he's a was, buddy of yours. He's a buddy of mine, and. You know, she's playing, I think she's really settled into, you know, just being super comfortable in her own skin, and that sort of translates on court. And she's, like, and her, her results have followed that. And, and I've... And she had this great grass court season that she kept going. Like yeah, she, 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 she translated. Like, she had a great Wuhan where she finaled. And yeah. uh, it's been, you know, just really fun to see her progress. Do you think that'll continue? I think it'll continue. I think that, you know, the challenge... The challenge that we see, especially in the women's tour, where a lot of players have run into problems, has been whether they can follow up their success. And we've seen it with a number of players where it's been so common in the last few years, a player will have a breakout event and then they'll kind of fall off the radar for a little bit, which I think is totally normal. It's a, it's a totally human reaction that maybe the previous generation of superstars we didn't see. They sort of made it seem like it was totally normal to, domin to win and then to dominate. But now we're seeing these players that have very human reactions that might have to do with social media, society, I don't know, all these things. But for me, it's been very interesting to watch. You know, like like a Garbina when she won the French and then she kind of struggled. Or Kerber won a big slam, struggled. Osaka wins two in a row, sort of struggles. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we learn about your career. First of all, where does your tennis begin? My tennis began in San Diego. I was... I was a soccer player and I played some of the other sports too and there was one day when a group of friends of mine suggested taking a tennis lesson together so my brother and I went there were five of us and we started doing a group lesson once a week and uh, I was 10 years old and it was a lot of fun right around that same time I saw this skinny kid with long hair and jean shorts playing on television and I thought that guy is super cool and I want to do that you saw you saw Andre, I saw Andre and you liked Andre and I thought that guy I thought he was like the coolest guy ever do you ever uh, talk to Andre? 
I actually sought him out this year during Wimbledon. And, you know, when he started coaching Novak and Grigor, you know, Shelby knew that I, like, loved Andre. And I was, you know, he was, like, my hero growing up as a kid. And I thought he was so cool. And all these tournaments, we'd see him, and she'd, you know, be like, go up to him, go up to him. And, and I, I just would choke every time. Wouldn't do it. You know, I didn't want to bug him, and I would get so tight. And then finally at Wimbledon this year, I, I saw him, and we were actually both walking back from Orangi at the same time, from Orangi yeah. to the main locker room. Orangi are the practice courts that are right next to Wimbledon. Yeah, and so I saw him, and he was, you know, walking back how he does, like, in a hurry. And I just went up to him and I said, Andre, like, I'm a huge fan. And I told him, I'm like, listen, my best friend pitched at USC. His son is going to USC to pitch. Yeah. Jaden Agassi is uh, going to be a, is a baseball player. Yeah. And we, and we just talked baseball for the next, you know, 10 minutes, walking back to the, to the main building, walking, talk USC and talk baseball. And yeah, it was really super cool. What do you say about the baseball? You know, he's, how excited he is for his son. He wants him to be happy, and he hopes, you know, the team is going to be good, and he's, you know, excited about the coaches and all that. And he's a pitcher, the he's kid. He's a pitcher, yeah. Supposedly, he's supposed to be really good. I've heard he's I heard he's very good. Did he get drafted? I think this is, uh, in, in baseball, your high school, your senior season is when you're drafted, so I'm not sure if he's a senior now, but he would be, his spring draft would be coming up. His draft time would be in the spring. Um that's going to be interesting. Yeah. The, the other thing is is we, we've been out to Vegas to train with Gil. And Gil Reyes, Andre's longtime uh, friend, confidant, guru, and trainer. And, and, you know, getting to know Gil has been so special. He's such a, just a special guy. And going from, you know, as a kid watching Andre and seeing him in the stands in the black jacket and the black hat and, you know, looking, you know, so tough and, and getting to know him. And he's such a sweet, you know, man, such a, you know, a great person. Um, but seeing all of Andre's Grand Slam trophies in the gym was like the coolest thing for me. Uh, you know, just watched all those things on television. For our listeners, we talked about it with Shelby, but Gil Reyes um, runs a basically a high performance. It seems like an invitation only tennis training program out of Vegas, and that's what Mark's talking about. Shelby went there to work out. Yeah, it's. Um it's a house that's been turned into a gym. There's all kinds of, there's one-of-a-kind machines there that you won't find anywhere in the world. He's built them all and designed them all. And you go there and everything is extremely functional for, for athletic movement and for the movements you're going to do in a tennis match. And, you know, there's eight Grand Slam trophies uh, head high for you to keep your eye on when you need a little motivation. That's funny he doesn't keep them in the house. It's pretty cool. No doubt. Andre is the absolute best. He touches so many people in a meaningful way. Um, but let's get back to you. Yeah, I got to be a decent player like pretty quickly. Like I started playing a lot, and I was, I was super into it. I ate, sli- you know, slept, breathed tennis. I was all about it. I watched some TV and read the paper and all that. What kind of junior career did you have? I, I mean, I was a very average junior player. Uh, I was still playing other sports. I think... Uh, you know, my parents weren't really sure what they, you know, they wanted to support what my brother and I were into. So they helped us out how they knew. And, you know, I was doing one lesson a week and going to a regular school and I played high school soccer. And um, I played a lot of good players like my age like, or my era. They were guys like the Bryan brothers, like Kevin Kim. I mean, Taylor Dent was like maybe a year younger. Uh, so there were a lot of great players around. And so it was fun to go to the tournaments and play with these guys and see them and, and then to eventually see the careers they had. Pretty cool. What, what happened next? Uh, I played at Boston College. I yeah, had a, how did that happen? 
Um, I it, it basically came down to you know either sort of walking on at a school you know a school like a USC and taking my chances there or going back east and playing somewhere where the team was probably weaker but I would have a chance to you know I could play right away and play a pretty uh, hang on so you were being recruited I was being recruited at some schools and then there were other schools like a USC or whatever that were like that's the creme de la creme you're, you're on your own yeah yeah you won't get it you you wouldn't have played anyway. Well, I mean, I would like to think that by, you know, going into maybe my sophomore, junior year, I would have worked my way into the lineup, yeah. You think you could have played it at USC or UCLA? Yeah, I think I could have gotten in the okay. lineup at some, yeah, for okay. sure, yeah. But you chose to go to Boston College where you were going to work, you were going to be in right away. Yeah, I had a great tri- a visit there when I went there. There was a guy from San Diego, also a year older than me, who was there, and he was saying good things, and so I said, why not? I wanted to be on Elk Coast for whatever reason. I wanted to be on Elk Coast when I went to school. What years? Uh, I was in Boston from the fall of 98 to 2002. Spring 20, spring 2002. I mean, that's great. It was fun. It was great. Like, you know, played in the Big East. There were, you know, Notre Dame, Miami, Virginia Tech. There were some good teams. There were also some bad teams. But it was, uh, you know, I loved going to school there. If I did it again, like, tennis-wise, it wasn't, you know, the best thing. But... You know, I had a great experience. There. Are you a believer in college tennis? I am. Yeah, I mean, college tennis is a great product. I think players can go and get better. It's all about where you choose to go to school. You know, like is college tennis itself going to make you better? No, but if you go to a good program with a good coach, yeah, you can get better and you can develop and you can have a great pro career. What was your best results in college? I had a, you know, I just had a really good freshman year and I didn't know who anyone was and didn't really care and I just went out there and won matches. You know, just out there and played. You just had a good when I just went out there and played and. Um, it was funny, I had this coach who was, you know, kind of like a stuffy, like, New England guy. And, um, you know, he didn't like this guy from Southern California, like, you know, coming in with, like, the long shorts and, like, the socks pulled up or, like, you know, backwards hat. He, he, you know, he, ruffled a few feathers in the ring. He threw him a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, he was like a country club guy, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but it's funny, my assistant coach was like, oh, like, he's complaining, blah, blah. He's like, I, he's like, I told Nigel. Sorry, Nigel. He's like, I told Nigel he can go out there and wear a dress for all I care as long as he's winning. Sure, sure. <laughs> so now, how do you go from being uh, a college player to uh, what I would I describe as an elite coach? Uh, so actually, so after my senior year at BC, I actually played for about a year, played some, played a bunch of futures, and then you, I you tried to play pro tennis. I tried to play pro tennis. Did you get any points? I no, I struggled. I was not good enough. Um, and then I went checked into law school. Went from there, law school, University of San Diego. You took LSATs. Took, I had took the LSATs like in the middle of that year when I was playing, and I, you know, had a pretty good score. I was good at standardized tests, and yeah, and I went to law school the following year. And I was in school, and I just didn't like it at all. Um, I was an econ major. I was into like you know numbers and things that are kind of black and white and formulas and whatever. And then in law school, it's you know, first year they say it's hard. Yeah, but it wasn't about that. It was like reading Justice Warren's opinion and making it match up to like the the point that you're trying to prove. And that for me wasn't. I didn't like that. Didn't land well for you. Yeah, it was just so subjective, and it's, I was wasn't into it. And I told my dad I wanted to quit, and he told me I you know you better have a plan. I did not have a plan, so I thought the easiest thing that I could do to buy some time was to coach tennis. So I looked at the NCAA website. I saw an opening at Princeton University, and I applied for it. And lo and behold, I ended up going there about two weeks later. I took a job, and that started my tennis career. Assistant coach. Assistant coach for the women. 
at Princeton. At Princeton University, yeah. A nice place to go to work every day. Amazing. What an, like an amazing town. I was there in my mid-20s, which isn't the most exciting time to be like in a town like Princeton. But for those of, for our <laughs> listeners, Princeton, New Jersey is actually really, really nice. It's a beautiful yeah. town. It's green. I loved it. There were great restaurants. Yeah, for those that don't think there's nice places in New Jersey... It's probably the nicest, one of the nicest parts of New but Jersey. But there's a lot of nice places yeah. in New Jersey. And Princeton, by all accounts, happens to be outstanding. Yeah, I actually took Shelby back there two years ago for like a training week because it's just so nice there. It's a nice place. So hold on. So now, did you have an epiphany while you were coaching tennis that you were going to make this, uh, take a real shot at it? Or no, what? it no. was like I, I need to buy some time and figure out what I want to do. And, you know, oh, my dad's going to love the name Princeton. That's what I thought, really. Like, Princeton, he's going to love it. <laughs> and, and he did. And I was there for three years. And then after three years, I'm like, okay, I think I'm good with the coaching. And I'm going to go to, back to San Diego. I'm going to do something else. I want to get involved in the business side of sports. Okay, so I go to San Diego, and I think I'm good to go. I need to make a little money while I'm looking for jobs. I took one more coaching job. I thought it was going to be just short-term for about a month or two with the family of a player that I had recruited at Princeton. She was going to go to USC in the fall, and they said, hey, can you help her get ready to play college tennis? Sure. And that is when I'm like, wow, I really like coaching. Because I was working with one player, and I had her pretty much all day, so we'd do two practices. And all my, you know, all my efforts were about making this one player good. And then one day I'm in a hotel in the middle of nowhere. There's this new website called Facebook. I join it. I hadn't been, you know, it, it was the first time I've been opened up to non.edu right. know, domains, emails. And so I joined it. And Facebook was originally just for, for colleges. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I joined it because I'd heard all these people talking about it. I joined it, sent some, you know, friend requests out because it syncs with your address book. Within a half hour, I got an email back from someone saying, you know, like, hey, Mark, uh, we're doing this program in Carson for the USTA been trying to get your contact information are you interested in coming up here and working with us and that started my career with the USDA and so you 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 got hired who did you report to from so David Roditi was in charge of the program they were going to hire some some part-time coaches some assistant coaches David Roditi was a player David Roditi is currently the head coach of SME TCU oh, sorry Texas Christian TCU go frogs and uh, he has a, a big-time program. Sorry, continue. Yeah, so David uh, was starting, the USTA was starting a junior program in Carson. They were going to start a very intensive program, and David was looking to hire a few part-time coaches to come in and supplement the program, to, to work with the national coaches and to get this thing going. So you reported to him. But was Jose Higueras? So Jose was his boss. Jose was here hands-on um, every week, two or three days a week when we were doing this junior program. So we, we started basically the, the biggest program that they had undertaken to that point. And the players in that program in the afternoons um, at like nine, 10 years old, Claire Lou, you know, you had Ernesto Escobedo, who was probably 11 years old. You know, Sloan Stevens was out there. Um, just a ton of Kayla Day, who was close to the top 100, um, was probably nine, 10 years old, part of that program. A ton of players came out of that program, which has been pretty cool to see. A couple of years in, I got promoted to become a national coach. National coach. And, you know, I was working every day with coaches like, you know, Tom Gullickson, David Roditi, Laurie McNeil, you know, Jose Higueras, um, you know. That's a master class right there. Ola Monquist would come in all the time. Jay Berger would come in all the time. Um, constantly high-level coaches coming in and, you know, 
telling you what you need to get better at. He just basically named, he just gave you a, a name of all the top coaches to this day that are still the most important coaches in U.S. tennis. Yeah, David Nankin was here, Roger Smith. These guys were here every day, Ray Ruffles. And it's like, it's like going to Harvard Law, you know, or it's right. going to one of the That's most prestigious. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most prestigious graduate programs you can do was basically what I was going through in Carson. And I'm, you know, forever grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. So after the USTA started with Jeannie, then when oh, you started, you work with Jeannie. Yeah. After how did that happen? I had connected with her agent and her agent put me in touch with Tennis Canada. They were looking for someone to travel with Jeannie and, you know, I had some good talks and we started. And th that lasted like a few months. Uh, our last tournament was Charleston. So yeah, why didn't that work out? She got to five in the world. Well, th that was the following year. So Charleston was our last event together. She quarterfinal there. It was her first quarter at a premier event, and she broke it to the top 100, which was really exciting. And, uh, you know, she wanted to be in Florida more. I was out here in California. And, you know, sometimes for nobody's fault, like it doesn't really, uh, like, work. And... You know, we worked well together. I thought I actually thought, you know, and I, I heard Michael's interview, you know, where you asked him about Jeannie too. Like, she's an unbelievable worker. It, people don't understand that. But, like, if you have her on a practice court or in the gym or whatever, she will, like, look you in the eye and she will bust her butt. Hey, I mean, and, listen, and she five in the world it. is no You don't joke. get there by accident. Yeah. Yeah. And, she and didn't get there just by accident. No, she was... You know, she was a fearless player. She took the ball so early. She returned really well. That was one of the first things I noticed about her was how early she could take the return and how much poise she had about herself. And, and so it, she, she was really fun to work with, and I learned I learned a ton being around her. It was the first, you know, pro player that I coached one-on-one -on -one like that, and so I learned a lot. Allie? Yeah, Allie was the following year, and I thought we worked, you know, we worked well together. She was coming off working with a coach, you know, for a long, long time, and... You know, I, one of the things I'm most excited about that year was she won her first match on red clay ever um, with me, which was like a blast. And she won a match in Strasbourg and she won a match in Paris, which was awesome. And then she made third round of Wimbledon, which was super cool. She lost to Maria inside center court. It sounds like you had good success. Yeah, we had great success. Um, it was, you know, it's the first and I think the only time that I've had a player play in, in center court in Wimbledon, which is a cool experience. The roof was closed. It was a middle Saturday. And and it was a blast. And I, I didn't think it was a big deal at the time, but I remember the day before the match, David Nankin, who I worked with here in Carson, he called me and was like, "Hey, you're on center court tomorrow. Like that's a big deal." And for someone like someone like him, who's coached so many great players, to call and say that like made me realize that. And then I, it, it helped me enjoy the experience more. It was cool. Here's the funny thing: got the we had the Wolf of Wall Street in the box that day. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. How did he end up in there? Yeah. One of my friends knew him randomly, and then, and then he called me and. Uh, was like, hey, like, any chance you have a ticket for the wolf? I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. It wasn't Tarango. No, 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 no. Tarango gives him lessons. No, it was, uh, it was you know, the Rocket. Jordan Belfort you know, Rodney is Marshall. his name. Rodney Marshall, who does strength yeah. and conditioning. Yeah, the Rocket. He's friends with, he was friends with the wolf, and so he set it up. Yeah, I think these guys live maybe in uh, in, in your neck of the woods. He spent some time in the, yeah, in the South Bay. Yeah. South Bay. I guess shout out to the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. Um we when we met you, you were working Shelby back into Shelby Rogers back into tennis. I mean, she had had what seemed like a really unpleasant injury, to say the least. Yeah, um, she had a career-threatening knee injury, and I was spending a lot of time in New York. And you know, it was 
It was an experience, another experience that we were able to learn a lot from. But but we no no but we met you then. But you had been with her when she had had like real success. Yeah yeah. So Shelby was, and I started working together in 2015, I believe. And Shelby Rogers. She's been on our show. Uh, she was a terrific interview. She's from Charleston, South Carolina, and. She's one of the only American women to have ever in the final eight club at the French Open. She kind of did it under the stealth of the night. No one's really ever given her any real credit for it publicly, it seems, but she was the real thing, and you were with her for that. Yeah, we started in 2015, and it was just a brutal start to that season. She maybe lost, I don't know, like 11 first rounds in a row or something. And I, like every week, I, I was in fear of being fired, um, just because at some point, you know, well, it's not working. You it's make not a working. Yeah, well, it's not working. And it's not working. I'm, you know, I'm so uh, appreciative of how loyal she was and how much she believed in what we were doing. Um, so 2015 was a rough year. She actually hurt herself at Wimbledon that year. She slipped. Actually, not at Wimbledon. At Birmingham, she slipped on some wet grass. She injured her MCL, and then was out for a few months came back right before the U.S. Open, made quality and made third round at the Open. And that was when I was starting to see some things sort of come together that we had been doing. And, and she's really a really top-level athlete. She's unbelievable yeah, ball striker. Yeah. Like big power, big weapons on both sides. So that was the end of 2015. She was, And she had dropped outside the top 100. She was like 150 in the world and started to make a little push at the end of that season. Going into 2016, she we decided to stay in California practice a little longer, play some satellites or some challengers, get some matches in. Skipped Australia. She was outside the top 100. She was going to be in qualities. We decided to skip Australia, take our time, get ready. And it turned out to be a great plan. She played some, was that 2016? Played some challengers. She finaled Rio. She was the last person in the main draw there. That put her at like, that put her at 108 in the rankings, making the finals of Rio. 108, she was the last person into Paris. Goes to Paris. Actually, excuse me, we went to Strasbourg. Didn't she win, like, Bogota or something? I think that was the next year. Oh. or I can't remember. The next year, she won Bogota doubles with Falcone. Hang on a second, though. Yeah. So go back. So, But then she got to the... I mean, you guys... She's last person in the French Open. In 2016. And yeah. then made this unbelievable run. Well, the week before in Strasbourg, she was in qualies. Okay? Goes to Strasbourg, loses last round qualies. Gets in as lucky loser, loses again. So she takes two L's back-to-back and is, like, pissed. And I said, I remember this, like, I'm like, Shelb, listen, something good's about to happen. Go to Paris, last person in the main draw, plays Carolina Pliskova first round. Rain all day, doesn't get to warm up. Hey, Shelb, there's a practice court across the street at the annex. We can go warm up if you go right now. By the way, this was the <laughs> year that it rained cats and dogs. The yeah. Seine, the river Seine overflowed. It was crazy. And she was like, nope, I don't need to warm up. I'm good. Goes out there, loses the first set, is down the second. I'm like, oh man, just rough conditions, cold, wet. All of a the sudden, worst conditions. Paris can be like really bad yeah, conditions, but good conditions for Shelby if she can like play, you know. And ends up turning the match around, starts getting real heavy with the forehand, just beating up Pliskova. Came like came back and won the match. Played great. Then next round played Vesnina on a nice day. She always liked playing Elena Vesnina, who was. Um, she must not have been seated if she played Pliskova first round. So anyway, beats Vesnina. Like, she always liked playing her good rhythm. You get a really nice rhythm. But good player. I mean, Lena Vesnina, like a top 15 player. Um, third round, played Kvitova on court two. 
Um, that was like a weird match. That was like a 6-0-1-6-6-0 match. That was like super bizarre. That's like a real, that's a real <laughs> funky score yeah. in, a, in a grand slam. Yeah, but played really well. was just hitting the ball on the screws. Um, fourth round, played Begu on Chatrier, who was like a 20-something seed, you know. Um, Pliskova had been a top 10 seed, played Begu next. Beat her on Chatrier, which was like so exciting. And after the match, it, uh, I don't know if you saw it, it was Bartoli interviewed her and Shelby was like in tears. and. Um, Marion would like you know comfort her and uh, it was just such a special moment like that day like I remember being I remember like all tournament being so in the moment and that was just like that was just one of the yeah I won't say it's the most proud moment that I had like as a coach like because there have been a few of them but it was really special to see you know someone do something that they were never sure they could do and that's what you know kind of she said in the interview fantastic and it was super cool and now here we are here we are let's move into our fourth set this is the 10 ball scramble this is not a deep dive we, we i say it and then you say what comes into your mind ready okay. yeah the ncaa interesting organization why i think they need to pay players that's another we're gonna do that in another episode <laughs> usta great organization that's it yeah i mean i think you know without the usta like they fund the sections they fund you know adult programs i think the usta actually i'll change it the usta is a very misunderstood organization they like to everyone likes to blame the usta because they're like this big governing body people like to blame the usta for there not being any good american players yeah like that's you know the, the percent of the budget that goes towards player development is so small like the money gets spread into other things and um, you know, without them, there'd be no leagues, there'd be no tournaments for kids to play. I think it's misunderstood. Player development. Misunderstood. Why? I think, again, people don't... Are we talking about USDA player development? I don't know. It's a, it's yeah, well, I, I, think, I think all elements of player development are misunderstood. Like, the amount of coaches, I think, who are going around talking about they know how to develop a pro player or whatever, I think that is um, kind of scary, frankly. Hocus pocus. You ever go on Instagram and look at what some of these coaches are putting on, uh, like these drills and stuff people are putting on Instagram? It's pretty funny. <laughs> I get, it makes me laugh. That's all I'm going to say. You think that uh, um, USPTR? USPTR, Dan Santorum, big fan. Big fan of what they do. So you think that some of the regulation, that the, the, some of the rules and regulations that go into sort of the coaching is, is good? There should be a more in-depth certification process by which one becomes a coach. I think about my time at Princeton, coaching. Like, I got I got a job coaching college and literally was straight out of law school, zero trend. Like, my only experience was having been a player, you know? And I look back, I'm like... You don't think that's adequate? No, I'm like, man, this guy had no idea what he's doing. Like, And that's why you have so many bad coaches, and that's why coaches coach the way they were coached, because they had nothing to compare it to. UTR. Interesting concept, and I think it's going to be... Something with legs. I mean, it's already shown that it has legs, but I, I love what they do. I played tournaments in France one summer, which, which is where the idea came from for a rating system. And yeah, big fan. DATP. Excited to see what it holds for me next year. The WTA. Progressive. Why? Making moves. Um, like I what? think they're trying to change and trying to evolve with the times I, I think you're going to see I don't know if I can talk about some of this stuff but I think you're going to see some changes that are going to be trialed in the upcoming year that are pretty interesting speaking of that uh, on court coaching uh, not a fan I think 
it becomes uh, such a spectacle right now with one visit per set and the microphone and you see I think the amount of times you see good Wait, inter- did you just say one visit per set that's what you can do right now and that's in, what in, that in is WTA yeah. coaching yeah. yeah you're allowed to come one per one per time per set oh god I feel like I see Kenan's dad running out every 10 minutes <laughs> uh, no. am I wrong about that <laughs> one time per set oh. and I think the visits don't always show the female players in the best light which I think is bad for the sport uh, coaching from the from the luxury box. Coaching from the coaching from the player box. Everyone does it. Should be allowed. Favorite city. Paris. Favorite tournament. Paris. What was the most important thing you learned from Shelby Rogers? Uh, patience and belief. Same question. Ali Risk. Knowing your game. Same question. Jeannie Bouchard. What I learned probably most from her was knowing how you want to work both as player and as a coach and have you uh, I know it's been it's been brief but I think you know her well uh, Nicole Gibbs hmm what have I learned most from her it would be like understanding that the process takes time because you know she was someone who went to college when people probably thought she should turn pro she was a person who returned to college multiple times when people were saying it's time to turn pro Best forehand now? Rafa. Best backhand now? Well, the first word that came to mind was Nalbandian. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and then Andre. But the best backhand now, I'm going to say Novak. Best volley now? Say Stevie Johnson. Best volley? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, just, just wait until you see this here. Stevie Johnson? Best serve? Opelka. Best coach of all time? Um, I would say, I would say Jose. Jose Higueras. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the ITF. Not a fan of what they've done with Davis Cup. The BC Eagles. <laughs> Love the Eagles. That's my team. Eagle for life. <laughs> That's it, man. Eagle for life. Mark Lucero. All right, let's go into uh, this. Is our fifth and final set. We call it the King of the Court. If you could be the King of Tennis for a moment and make a change in the sport with a swing of the racket without any real aggravation, what would it be? I have two. One would be getting rid of the fall after the U.S. Open. I would make that a team tennis part of the year. I put world team tennis after the U.S. Open in the U.S. in the major cities. And then I would go straight into the offseason. I'd get rid of like that Asia and European indoor part of the year. I'd put that in the season somehow. I'd figure out a, you know, a calendar that flowed better. But I think after the Open, you know, the, there's such a high after New York. Like people are so focused on you know, the U.S. Open during Labor Day weekend and then during the following weekend. It's like this crescendo of media coverage. And then you know, they're like, oh, the players are still playing. They're in Wuhan or they're in whatever, wherever. Like, I think it's bad for the media. The players are tired. They don't really want to be there. Some do, but um, I think you make you play world team tennis in the major cities, like to sort of capitalize on that media attention after the finals of New York. And I think you're done at the end of September. That's one. So the other thing I would change in tennis would be, I think in tennis we need a version of the universal basic income. I think there should not be first round prize money, but I think you got to figure out a formula based on your year end ranking 
with a minimum amount, basically a salary you're going to get for the year, which would be the equivalent of the average schedule at that ranking and the average first round prize money. Then you get paid after you win second, third, you know, quarterfinals, whatever. So I think everyone should have a minimum number of dollars that sort of they're getting paid out monthly or biweekly or whatever at the beginning of the year that they're going to know that they can count on. That's so, kind of a cool idea. I like that. Yeah. So, and, so you get a couple hundred grand right out, like, like, like you know, you get you get 10 Gs, uh, you get 15 Gs uh, a, month a month or whatever. Or, you know, I, 12, think, whatever I it think it'll take away the incentive for players to play hurt that you get no matter what. If your ranking drops at the end of the year or whatever, like you're, it's going to adjust for the following year. But I think it's going to take away the incentive for players to play hurt. I think it's going to take away a lot of the incentive for some of the, you know, the match fixing or whatever. Um, Tanking. It'll take away from the tanking. Yeah, if you don't want to play, you don't have to play. But, like, based on your work the prior year, I, I don't think it's fair that the following year, like, if you should have to make decisions between, geez, you know, between player welfare and meeting your requirements to the tournaments. That's what I think. I think it's, it's you know... Get some rent money in the bank. Players need a stronger union, period. Players need a stronger union. Need a union. What would you do to improve coaching? And to improve coaching, I would have a more uh, more robust educational program for coaches. And a criteria. And a criteria for coaches to meet. doesn't have anything to do with, you know, what kind of player they were or whatever. But I think understanding elements of, you know, of biomechanics, of human anatomy, of psychology... You know, of what kind so of, you're the anti Nick Volatari or the no, anti no, uh, no 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 I mean he's, uh, he's, Richard Williams no I mean they've both done unbelievable things but I think but that's the argument against the criteria yeah but uh, you know how many of those guys are there versus how many you know people are down the street teaching kids like messed up forehands by the way uh, you know in golf uh, you have to be a scratch to be a to be a golf instructor, period. You have got to be a certain level of basically golf genius. In tennis, any bozo can get a bucket of balls and start feeding them. <laughs> throw, throw an ad on Craigslist, like, you know, 20 bucks an hour, and they're probably getting a lot of work. 80 bucks an hour, man. Yeah, well, both. Yeah. Come on, forget yeah. about some twenty bucks. Yeah, but that, there's no rules. So that's there's a little no. bit different. Yeah, one of one of my friends used to say he used to say like if someone's going to give you a bad haircut, like you're going to keep going back to them. But in tennis, people don't know any better. Hey, man. Uh, first of all, Merry Christmas. Dude, Merry Christmas. Uh, have a great. Uh, you're driving to San Diego now. Yep. Okay. Um, thanks again. It's really good to see you here on the West Coast. Last time we saw you was in New York. My man, you are released. Thanks, dude. Huge thank you to Mark Lucero. Good luck in Australia. Hopefully the microfiche analysis bears fruit. On a more serious note, our thoughts are with the entire nation of Australia as they battle these horrendous brush fires. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. And congratulations to Nicholas Pedrali for winning our first giveaway contest. Really hope you enjoy that gear. See what Tacchini's doing at SergioTacchini.com. Big thank you to our new patrons, John Sedal and Alan Clark. Your VIP experience at the Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island is locked. If you've been thinking about becoming a patron, now is the time. Head on over to Patreon.com slash Underreview Tennis to read all about it. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com 
slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, check out our YouTube page. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Max Loeb edited the show, and Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.